0: Before we start our episode, we want to welcome Middle Sister Wines as our happy hour sponsor. Did you know that birth order is commonly believed to have a profound and lasting effect on psychological development and that the Middle Sister has a greater chance of having a wine named just for her? Well, welcome to the world of Middle Sister, sassy wines for Middle Sisters and everybody who loves them, which includes the Three Tomatoes. We've been fans for years of their delicious whites like Drama Queen Pinot Grigio, but we confess we're slightly partial to Rebel Red and her sassy remarks like, if anyone tells you they don't like red wine, stop talking to them. You don't need that kind of negativity in your life. They're more than just a wine. They're a family of sisters you're going to love. Learn more at MiddlesisterWines.com. And now we hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to Happy Hour. I'm Cheryl Benton and my guest is Rika Keck, one of my favorite people. And a longtime contributor to the Three Tomatoes, Rika is a holistic wellness expert who is trained extensively in nutrition, metabolic typing, and exercise. As a health expert, she's able to address underlying metabolic imbalances, which contribute to digestive ailments, weight gain food sensitivities, sensitivities, skin conditions, fatigue, inflammation, hormonal imbalance, imbalances, and many more issues. She's highly regarded in the area of Lyme disease, and she's the author of Nourish, Heal, Thrive, a comprehensive and holistic approach to living with Lyme disease, and her second book is actually a cookbook called Nourish Your Brain. So, Rika, welcome. I'm so excited to have you here.
1: Thank you, Cheryl. I'm delighted to be on your radio podcast, so thank you very much for inviting me to come along.
0: You're an encyclopedia of of health information, and I know we're just going to hit a tiny little bit of this today, so we're going to have to have you back for for more talks with us, but... Let's talk a little bit about your background first because you grew up in South Africa and you're a classically trained ballerina. So how did you go from that to becoming a health and wellness expert?
1: Well, it is really strange because I never thought about it. You know, I yes, I was a ballet dancer in a company in South Africa. And then I morphed into fitness. And then I, from fitness... One teacher whom I trained extensively with in California, Paul Check. it is there that I learned if the body doesn't heal physically, one has to look at the nutrition. And then if one does eat right and exercise right and still does not heal, one has to consider the mind-body connection and the spiritual connection. So it is through those learnings over many years that I Sama just went on this path of becoming a holistic practitioner, yet also still having one foot in the fitness world because I just love working with the physical body and having a background in ballet has made it, you know, such a natural progression. And even sometimes when I feel I want to, because I'm so steep in the Lyme disease and holistic, Mm -hmm. you know, digestion, wellness in that arena, There is still something that is always putting me back into the work with the physical body and perhaps my eye from classical ballet, it's so developed, yet also being able to touch the body and seeing change happen very quickly because in one exercise session, you can see so much shift for the individual or pain patterns shifting. Through correct movement and breathing and stress reduction that I've also always kept one foot in the fitness world, even though I'm very deep in the Lyme disease and holistic wellness world. So I'm kind of a thrilling
0: to two different worlds or wearing different hats. Well, and that's- yeah, I love that because you, it, you, you've you been able to actually marry two of your passions in terms of the movement thing along with the wellness so I think that's that's wonderful. And I, I always love to hear people's stories of how they got into fields that are very different than what they started out to be. Um, but And I have a quick question for you, though, before we get into some of the more serious health-related issues, because you have the most perfect posture. And I'm sure that came from your uh, your ballet training too, but you literally float into a room and I'm tall like you are. And I know when I was growing up, I would be hunched over and my mother was always yelling at me to stand up straight. And now I have a teenage granddaughter and I'm always saying to her, you know, stand, stand up straight. So can you just talk for a, a little bit about posture, why it's so important and how we can improve our posture, especially as we age, because so many of us start to get a little stooped over.
1: Probably Cheryl. I'll be honest that posture, having been a dancer and constantly reinforcing posture to clients, it comes natural to me. But after having been on crutches for six weeks, I myself felt how my posture was changing and I was getting stooped over. Mm-hmm. How I had to work at actually correcting that, and this I mean just happened a few months ago. However, before my accident, when I was always drilling down on posture, to me, especially today, we size up individuals within the first three to four seconds when they walk into our presence or into a room. And confidence is so much evoked through the initial posture when someone comes into our presence, how we carry ourselves. Without even saying a word, the way we hold ourselves speaks volumes. So to me, that already is a very important uh, component of our posture. It, it It shows up our presence in the world. And people read it, even though we might not say a word or they're not saying a word. From a functional perspective, standing up straight, of course, with the head being aligned over the neck, spine, and shoulder, girdle, and pelvis, If the head is forward, we are, you know, shutting down some of the oxygen flow into our brain. So from Mm. our brain doesn't get enough oxygen, Uh, with the computer use, iPhones, all that, you know, the forward head posture is a huge, huge issue. And it affects the health of our brain as it doesn't get enough oxygen. So to me, sitting up straight, standing up straight will improve the lymphatic and airflow into the brain. And at the same time, if I stand up straight, I can breathe better, I can use my rib cage, I can use the diaphragm. And also by standing up straight or sitting up straight, it improves digestion. Because if we hunched over when we're eating a meal, everything is squashed together in the stomach. And that affects how we digest our food. And it affects also, of course, when we are at a computer slumped over, you know, working, working hours on end or writing a book, it affects our ability to breathe properly.
0: Oh, my gosh. That's such great. That is such great information because I spend like you and many other people, I mean, hours and hours at my computer. And I know I'm crunched over. So what should we be doing when we're sitting at our computer? What what little tips would you give us? And I didn't realize that it impacted the brain, too. So that's huge info. It is
1: what is I mean, we always hear about standing up, taking a walk, you know, just getting out of their prolonged seating position because the sitting today is called the new smoking because we tend to do too much of it and it's, it's affecting our health adversely. So to me, it's just becoming aware actually of changing our seated position frequently, even just moving the foot or moving the arms, sitting up straight, but also taking breaks in between where maybe just sitting by the side and actually becoming mindful of taking some deep breaths in good posture, sitting up straight, getting the ears over the shoulders and just becoming aware of how we expand the diaphragm, expanding the root cage, just really breathing and bringing oxygen into our cells, into our brain and a strong exhale. That alone and also standing up and actually doing some pumps where you stand up even if balance is an issue, you hold onto the back of a chair and you raise the heels up and down, you know, 20 times, just pumping, bringing motion, bringing lymphatic action, bringing oxygen into the cells, taking breaks. That is so important because if we are in one position for a prolonged period of time we are adding tremendous physical stress on the body and we might not notice it but our body does and that over time will affect how the health is in our body and physical you know ailments in the neck and shoulders that often can happen with prolonged computer use and again uh, Not breathing properly will also induce more fatigue and then the eyes will get more tired. So just generally more a sense of fatigue can creep into the body with lack of oxygen and not moving. So taking breaks, standing up, taking deep breaths in between, changing your position, those all are helpful with prolonged use when sitting at a computer for a long time.
0: Wow. Thank you for that. And actually, as you were talking through, I was actually I'm sitting at my computer now talking to you and I was actually moving a bit and taking some breaths. So I'm going to keep all that in mind. I think that's great, great advice. So now you have a quote. Actually, I think it's more than a quote. I think it's really a motto, which I actually love. And you say no pill can cure diseases, illness, weight gain, pain and fatigue, but your personalized nutrition, lifestyle and environmental exposures can. And I know that one of your concerns with traditional medicine is that we're prescribed so many pills that just alleviate symptoms, but without ever really getting to the underlying causes. So could you talk about that a little bit? It's such an important concept, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to clarify that uh, even though I am a holistic practitioner, I am not against Western medicine. You know, to me, it is more the long-term use of pharmaceuticals that is more of an issue. You know, if you are having a bad infection, acute, and you need a round of antibiotics, okay. But living, for instance, on long-term use of, let's take example, acid-blocking medication, that to me is more a concern. Because if you need to put out a fire quickly, Western medicine is extremely helpful. And also, if you're being hit by a bus or like me, if I need to have surgery, you know, you have medical interventions, you take pharmaceuticals on a short term, get yourself better, get off the meds. But just living on medication for a long term, I do have issue with that because it doesn't address possible underlying causes that might actually create the problem. It is taking a drug, say if there's a, you know, GERD or acid reflux situation going on for quite some time. And then if one takes an acid blocking medication, it is only designed to be for short ter- term use. It is not designed for long-term use, even though I'm seeing it a lot. A lot of times that people take it for a long time, they kind of live on it. Oh and, yeah. It's you know, like it's, they're eating candy or something. You know, and again, to be honest, you're not born with a pepsid ACE, you know, with a Pepsi deficiency or a Zantac deficiency. It means if there's like ongoing acid reflux going on, that there's something causing this situation for you and it is more important to find out why this is going on so that over time the medications can be weaned off and there can be so many reasons why this can be happening for instance if you're looking at acid reflux that has been going on for some time could it be the foods that are being consumed with rancid fats that are irritating the stomach and creating an acid reflux situation or is there a structural issue, a hyal hernia, that a chiropractor can address that prevents the, you know, that the esophagus closes properly and the food doesn't go up and down all the time and create symptoms that are very uncomfortable and can contribute to acid, you know, excess acid in the stomach? Or is there even a lack of stomach acid to begin with so that when you eat food, there's a lack of stomach acid and the food doesn't get broken down properly so it putrefies on the stomach and that creates even more acidity and that creates the stomach acid problem that maybe one should consider you know either use of digestive enzymes in some more severe cases maybe some support with you know hydrochloric acid or betaine or enzymes that really break down proteins properly so that the food doesn't just sit in the stomach and rot and creates more acid. So it could be structural with a hiatal hernia. It could be a lack of stomach acid. It could be a lack of enzymes from the pancreas. It could be a lack of flow from a sluggish gallbladder. These are all reasons why one might have stomach acid trouble. So just taking Pepsid AC will not address anything of that. And separately, there's an infection called H. pylori that can also be in play, and the doctor has to check that out. The doctor also has to check out if there's perhaps a stomach ulcer going on. So there are many different reasons why one can have stomach acid, and just taking an acid-blocking medication will not address any of that. And like I mentioned before, it might be structural, a hiatal hernia, that a chiropractor can address. So it wouldn't even need stomach acid medication. So this is why I do think it is important when there's long-term medications use to try to get a better understanding of possible causes that could be in play that create a condition. Because if we just take a, a pharmaceutical and suppress a symptom, it is like a monster when you cut the head off. Over time, the monster will grow another head and it'll come back. But it could come back in a different area in the body.
0: Right. So it could could be a twofold thing. It could be perhaps a doctor not asking deeper questions or a patient just, you know, as we said, just taking the over counter, you know, uh, asset blockers and, you know, getting rid of the symptoms and just doing that long term when they really could end up being doing a lot of damage. So it could be a two part kind of a thing, couldn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, From my experience as a holistic practitioner, when, when clients come to me with a lot of digestive ailments, including GERD or acid reflux or gastritis, what I see is usually the endoscope is done by the physician or a colonoscopy is done by the physician. Sometimes there is some more imaging being done. However, usually I, this is what I see is a prescription for acid-blocking medications for a couple of weeks or months, and then the client or patient is told to come back. But clients come and see me and say, "Rika, I don't want to live on these this medication. I wonder right. why this is going on with me, and I want to do something about it. Could it be the food that I'm eating, or could there something else be going on, or is there something called, you know, yeast overgrowth going on that can also create, you know, acid blocking, you know, acid production that creates the problem with too much acid in the stomach and gastritis and inflammation in the esophagus, you know." it's there's a little you know a little or a big fire burning we got to figure out you know what is causing it and then we have to use the right choices to address it so that it can be remediated and not come back you know, just taking a fire extinguisher and trying to you know burn it all out you know blow it out but if you don't figure out where it's coming from and address it at that level chances right are you, it will come back once you stop the pharmaceutical
0: Exactly. And I think that's, that's so true of so many other um, uh, ongoing conditions that a lot of people have and just, you know, treat with pills and don't ever get to the, actually the root of them. So again, those, those are all great things for us to think about. I want to move on though a little bit here into another area of your expertise, because it is summer. summer's just about here and we're all spending a lot more time outside and, it's a great time of the year, but it also comes with some perils. So I want to talk to you about two things that I think are very helpful to think about this time of the year. The first is sun exposure. And the second is where, since we are outside, that means our exposure to ticks and Lyme disease are heightened too. So let's start with the sun exposure. Uh, You know, how much is good and how much is bad? And you wrote an article uh, not long ago, actually, for the Three Tomatoes. And you said in there, and I found this fascinating that outdoor workers actually report lower rates of melanoma than indoor workers. So what's that all about? What's good sun? What's bad sun? What can we be doing to protect ourselves? And then of course, the second part of that is we now know, you know, we're slathing ourselves with sunscreens and we now know there's some stuff in there that may not be so great for us too. So help. What do we do? Cheryl, this is
1: a dilemma, actually, a when I was in a building the other day, a doorman actually asked me the question, said, Rika, I keep hearing to put on sunscreen, but then in my country, in Central America, everybody's in the sun, and we don't put on all the sunscreen. I am so confused, and it's interesting that we're talking, and especially with my history also. with I had, um, obviously, I've had skin cancer surgeries, so... It has even made this a special area of interest in me because it's personal. Right. When I was first diagnosed with melanoma and CETA, people said, Oh, it's because you're fair skinned and blue-eyed and you grew up in South Africa on the beach. But then my internal voice was saying, But then surely everybody who lives on the beach should be having skin cancer, and that is not so. So I do think that being fair skinned, blue-eyed, that and having A lot of sunburns as a child, a lot of sunburns are are a concern and it's also, it's the sunburns that can happen when one has a false sense of putting on sunscreen and staying longer in the sun because the UVA and UVB rays are very different rays. And just because one puts on sunscreen, it creates a false sense of security. And there are, like you said, there are toxins in the sunscreen. And the sunscreens we have today are also disrupting our hormones with the chemical estrogen. So the whole thing is a conundrum. What I do think, though, is to consider that without sunlight, we don't have life. Without sunlight, vegetables and flowers will not grow. The sun... In our skin takes cholesterol and creates vitamin D. Vitamin D is not a vitamin, it's actually a hormone. And usually individuals who spend more time in the sun will have more vitamin D protection and it is possible that that also gives protection against cancer and skin cancers. If we are in uh, Winters all cuddled up the whole time and then go into the sun and really have a lot of sun exposure and then again have no sun exposure during the winter it's the extremes that can make us more susceptible to sun damage sun ray damage and rather if we spend more regular time outside in the sun as in central america and those countries here in the northeast and uh, with this always this warning of having to be lathered up in sunscreen as soon as you leave your house. I think the pendulum has swung too far to the other side. And in Australia, and even in England now, there's been a a new push to that, to saying that, and I find it very interesting, that how a balance is required between excessive sun exposure, which increases the risk of skin cancer, but we also need enough sun exposure to maintain adequate vitamin D levels that we need to, again, get to checks and balances because now new findings show that even though we talk about vitamin D is coming from the sun, that they now are checking into that vitamin, I mean, sun exposure will also help to lower blood pressure and that with vitamin D exposure will also have an increase in nitrogen oxide that also affects our blood pressure and that exposure to the sun Also will have more beneficial effects than what we know of right now. There are new studies coming up this year, which I think is very exciting. And also how it will affect autoimmune diseases. So there's new science coming out this year. And I just think it's really important that the levels or low levels of vitamin D that I've seen in blood work in clients coming in is alarming. And just taking a vitamin D supplement, I see some people taking vitamin D supplements and the vitamin D levels are not budging, even though they are supplementing with vitamin D. I think it is a lot more complicated. And I do think that getting the sun exposure, for instance, in the earlier mornings or in the afternoons is very helpful. And also, you know, when the sun is not like full blast, you know, that's the time also where a big sun hat. Or I wear some sun clothing that has sun protection on it because if I'm in midtown and the sun is bouncing off the pavements with my history of skin cancers, I do want to be careful. Right. And I will use sun protection. I don't necessarily like to put creams on my face with chemicals that can also create more DNA damage and make myself more susceptible to skin cancers. So it is chemicals that can disrupt the DNA and can create more inflammation And that can make us more susceptible to skin cancers. Plus, separately, viruses can be activated in our bodies that can also make us more susceptible to skin cancers. Plus, genetic susceptibility can be turned on, that our vitamin D production in the body doesn't work properly. So, we will have trouble with vitamin D production in the body and its application inside the body. So, it is very, very complicated. What I want to say, though, is in a way not to. Be so fearful of the sun that we avoid it at all costs. Because there is benefit to sun exposure, but again, it must be in checks and balances that it's not extreme, not to avoid, absolutely avoid sunburn. And even if you are using sun protection to choose something that is organic, more organic as possible, there's nothing that is chemical free 100%, but avoiding all commercial products. And also, when you are using um, to wear a big hat, broad-rimmed hat, and to also use protective clothing in the middle of the day, yet also making sure that there is some exposure, not at the peak of the day, not too long, and to, you know, staying abreast with the new findings of sun exposure and also being critical of everything you read, because sometimes we want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and the way we have viewed sun exposure and that it causes skin cancers, often there are new studies coming out that some sun exposure at certain times of the day is very beneficial to our health. And we need to keep an open mind on that. And as I mentioned before, choosing skincare that is organic in nature and has less um, toxins in it, chemicals, that can also affect our hormones and create more
0: chemical estrus in our body that can create other problems for us. That is fabulous information. Really, really so informative. And first of all, I had no idea that vitamin D was actually a hormone. And uh, all of this new research sounds really, really fascinating. And I think you're right when you kind of think about it. If the things we've thought about uh, how people get skin cancer were were totally accurate, then we would all have it, right? I think that's a a good point. So certainly lots of things to think about and lots of things to question in that area too. Um, So let's move on a little bit. I want to talk about Lyme disease and the time we have uh, remaining because you're such an expert in this topic. And certainly if you live in the Northeast, it, it impacts so many people. And I personally know so many people who are living with chronic Lyme disease. So let's talk about, first let's talk about how do we, what can we do to protect ourselves from Lyme disease? And also is it, is Lyme disease everywhere in the country or is it just something here in the Northeast?
1: Let's put it this way. Lyme disease all, is all around the world. Okay. Right. So that's, that's, that's there. Uh, here in the Northeast, Lyme disease is more pronounced, but at this point, I don't like to talk about Lyme disease anymore because with one, sick bite, one can get up to 15 infections at once.
0: Wow.
1: In that, I can include bacteria, uh, parasites, and viruses. So if we're just talking about Lyme disease, now it is too simplistic because uh, most people with one, they don't just have Lyme disease, they have another infection present with that. So we used to think just that it's Lyme disease, but now we know a lot more about it, and there is a lot more information coming out. And especially here in the Northeast, uh, there's an infection called Babesia, that's a parasitic infection that does not respond to doxycycline, that is on play. And here in the Northeast, another infection called ehrlichiosis or anaplasma can be there. That is more effective with doxycycline and doxycycline is usually used for Lyme disease and that is more prevalent here in the Northeast. However, across the country, we have different strains. In Europe, we have different strains than here in the Northeast or in the United States. So Lyme disease, it is global and it is uh, the largest growing infection at this time. There's research being done, but there's not enough funding for research being done. And funding is being done for vaccines. But again, if you only target Lyme disease, you'll miss the other infections. And that's why if you have a tick bite and you get a bull's eye rash then you are fortunate because with a bull's eye rash you will get treatment it is by doctors accepted that that is Lyme disease so what is important to know that the bull's eye rash is not that prevalent and this is why many people could be bitten by a tick and they don't get the bull's eye rash right they right. have that- disease and other infections and the test that is done is called the western blood test or the ELISA test and that test is the gold standard but it only checks for Lyme disease and it doesn't check for the other infections that might potentially be transmitted with a tick bite or an insect bite or now we know the fleas from dogs and can also transmit infections especially an infection called Bartonella. That is also very serious now in order to protect yourself when you're going outside in the country because ticks are around all year round yeah this is
0: scary stuff what do we yeah this is scary stuff so
1: so if you were going out on a hike
0: or so i do you know
1: i like to wear light colored clothing so you can monitor for anything dark is crawling up at the same time i don't leave the home with using uh, tick sprays that contains essential oils and there are, are some tick sprays available on Amazon or in health stores or even at Fairway. I mean, one product that I use is called Nantucket Spider. Another product I use is called TikTok Naturals. I, I'm not endorsed by them, so I'm just putting them out to give you some helpful information.
0: Yeah, great. The
1: oils that I use are also um, lemongrass oil or tea tree oil or neem oil. But those must be diluted in the carrier oil before you put it onto your body. So I prefer to go and buy a spray and I'll spray it all over. And I can also use the essential oils diluted on my skin. I don't like using chemicals on my body. Now, should uh, you use preferred or feel safer using it, there's um, something called permethrin that is being used. DEET is not that effective. And... Permethrin is a chemical that is neurotoxic. So it affects the the brain, the nervous system of the tick and other, you know, insects and kills them. But if you choose to use chemicals, do not inhale the vapors because you're going to inhale them into your brain and harm your brain. Wow. So when I do use them, I spray them outside, not in the house because they are very potent I am chemically sensitive and it can irritate me and it hurt my eyes and my brain so I go outside you know and my husband he's outside you know all the time you know in the weeds and so on in the garden he also sprays on his clothing and then when you come inside it is best not to bring the clothes when you're hiking or outside into your home should something have caught up in your clothes and you're sitting on a sofa to watch some sports or something it can go onto your sofa and it can come around if you have pets check your pets check your dogs check your cats because ticks can be on your pets when they come inside and then it can be transmitted to you you can take a hot shower on a hot shower supposedly ticks don't like the heat and they will drop off but the best thing you can do is again check your body when you come in do not wait until nighttime when you go to bed and take off your clothes to check yourself, because if a tick has been attached from the earlier day of the part of the day, things could have been transmitted already just because a tick, and they say it on TV as well, you know that needs to be attached for a certain amount of hours, 24 hours or 36 hours, you're safe. No, there is no safe margin with tick attachment wow. so, Ticks suck and in the regurgitation they put agents into our body. And not every tick carries infection, but the number of ticks that carries infections has climbed dramatically. And I, I think it is better safe to be sorry to use, you know, sprays to protect yourself when you're outside. Do the tick check when you come in. Check your dogs, check your pets, your four ticks. If you find a tick, you know you you don't want to, you know, irritate it and, you know, put nail polish remover on a ring. No, 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 no. Have the fine tweezers. It's like, and pull it, try to attach it to the tick and pull out the tick so the head comes out as well, the head pieces. If you're not sure, go to the ER, have them take it out. But again, time is of the essence with a tick when you see it's attached. If it's embedded, you have to go to the, you know, doctor or emergency room, have them take it out but you want to take the tick out without irritating it, no twirling around. Once the tick gets aggravated, it's going to become aggravated and it's going to, you know, inject more stuff into the body. So we don't aggravate the tick.
0: That's so, Rika, if you, if you do get a tick bite yes. and you've removed it, should okay. you then go and see a doctor to be tested for Lyme and all these other diseases? Well, if I had a tick
1: bite, I would put on oil of oregano onto the tick bite, the whole area. That has actually been, you know, oil of oregano and clove butt oil. The NIH has said that those are very effective against infections. Wow. If you go to the doctor and check check yourself then with a blood test, it most likely will be negative because your body needs four to six weeks to make antibodies against the infection. Hmm. If you have a tick bite and you check yourself too soon you might not have antibodies and test negative even though you might be infected so i like to use prophylaxis now if you have a tick bite and you go to the doctor the doctor might give you an antibiotic for 24 hours the doctor might give you antibiotics for three days but if nothing shows up Doctors, I, from my experience, do not give you three weeks. The um, guidelines from ILADS, which is the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society, of whom I am a proud member, and the Global Lyme Alliance, I mean, there are standards that when there's a tick bite, that there should be three weeks of doxycycline. right? so that you don't get sick. There is no scientific research to prove that a 24-hour antibiotic will prevent Lyme disease. Wow. And I know that because when I was giving a presentation, someone you know <laughs> very much accosted me on that, and there's no scientific finding to show that it cannot develop later. You will most likely not get a skin rash, a bullseye, but 24-hour antibiotic will not necessarily prevent you from developing Lyme
0: disease later. That is uh, what invaluable information you you have shared with all of us today Um, and I just wish we had more time because uh, we we all know that there are so many people who are living with Lyme disease but those people we will definitely direct them to your book which is Nourish, Heal, Thrive again a comprehensive and holistic approach to living with Lyme disease. Uh, and we'll have to have you back on and talk about that, and so many of the other things that you're just as I said, you're in you're an encyclopedia of incredible health and wellness information for all of us. And thank you so much for sharing today, especially as we go into the summer season with you know. Not, you know, being careful, not getting sunburns, what we put on our skin, and especially uh, covering up and being uh, being alert for ticks, which is very, very serious stuff. So, Rika, thank you so much for joining us today. I thank you, thank you, thank you. We love your contributions at The Three Tomatoes. And people can also find out more about you at your website, too. You want to give that t- to our listeners?
1: Yeah, Cheryl, just one thing that I, I think I should do is on, on, on the blocks for the Three Tomatoes to give a little bit of follow-up guidelines regarding the ticks so the, the listeners will have more information. My website is nyintegratedhealth.com. That is great.
0: That is great news. And yes, I, we, would love, uh, we would love a follow-up article uh, on the whole issue with the ticks and what we should be doing this summer, because I think it was a while ago since we posted some of this information. So that would just be a great uh, addition to people listening to the podcast. And then they can go and read so, a, a little more in depth. So thank you again. We'll have you back. Get well soon yourself. Thank and,
1: you. Uh, I appreciate it. And also to all the listeners, I wish you a healthy and happy summer.
0: Uh, thank you so much. Thank you.
1: Bye-bye.